Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Ed Miliband, former leader of the Labour Party and current Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and author of a new book, Go Big, How to Fix Our World, which we're discussing today on the show. Thanks so much, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Ed Miliband talking to me about his new book, Go Big. Hello, Ed Miliband, and thank you for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm good, and um, it's very good to be with you and really glad to be doing this. We're going to be talking today uh, quite a bit about your new book, Go Big, How to Fix Our World, which I've read and I really enjoyed. The book strikes quite an optimistic note. And some people might wonder how you managed to stay cheerful, particularly in a context like the one that we're living in right now. What are you so optimistic about? I mean, that is a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, I, I think in a way, part of what you've got to be as a progressive is optimistic because there is so much challenge and so many setbacks that you've got to keep fighting and you've got to think the world can be better. And I think if you look at the course of history, I know that's a sort of cliche now, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I Mm. do think, when when I think about when I was growing up, Ruth First and Joe Slovo, prominent South African activists, uh, ANC activists were friends of my parents. Ruth was murdered by the South African government. Mm. But you know, they would never have believed or, or my parents would certainly have doubted that we would see the end of apartheid in the 80s. And we did. Mm. And so I think I think I think the first thing is that it's certainly not linear, but history is marked, in my view, by progress. And, but, and secondly, I think what makes me optimistic in terms of the book is, I mean, that there are great ideas out there that think of any problem that we face and there is a solution somewhere around the world or indeed somewhere in Britain. But also it's the people who are making change happen. The the, the people who fought for a fifteen dollar minimum wage in the US out of two hundred thousand fast food workers now covering mm-hmm. twenty two million people, the divestment movement, uh, the climate movement, or community wealth building in Preston and elsewhere, you know, there are lots of reasons for hope. So I think partly it's it's kind of it's a necessity. And partly, I think there are good reasons for it. Yeah, it's easy, I think, for particularly for people of my generation, whose most of their political lives have been defined by organising in these movements, and, you know, some quite notable victories within various different kinds of institutions, to then see a lot of what they were fighting for fail. Um, whether that's in the Labour Party or kind of in policy terms or whatever, and then think, oh, well, you know, what have we got to fight for? What have we got to hope for? Well, actually, if you look at things over a much longer time period, 
progressive forces today do seem to be a lot stronger than they have been certainly at any point in the last 30, 40 years. At the end of the book, I talk about a late mutual friend of both of ours, Leo Panage, mm. and he always, who tragically died at, at Christmas in Christmas 2020 uh, of COVID. And, you know, he always used to say to me, he was a sort of father figure to me, and he, he always used to say, look, don't confuse your own lifespan with the sort of struggle. Yeah. <laughs> that the struggle goes beyond your lifespan. And that's just the way it is. Um, but it doesn't mean to say there isn't progress. We're recording today on Freedom Day. Do you think that it's right for the government to be lifting all restrictions? And why do you think the, the Tories seem to be so keen to go ahead with this unlocking, even as we're seeing new cases reach 50,000 a day for the first time since January? I think the way they're doing it is incredibly cavalier. It feels like, I don't know whether it's what Johnson always wanted to do and wanted his instincts, you know, his instincts. But, you know, you can understand that this does seem to be, I, I emphasize, seems to be, you know, a case that the scientists are making that the unlocking of some of the venues and others that have been closed, you know, doing it in the autumn might be worse and, and so on because, you know, schools are getting out and so on. But the end to mask wearing, the end to the advice about working from home, the lack of emphasis on proper ventilation. There's just a whole range of issues where it just seems incredibly cavalier and incredibly reckless and deeply, deeply worrying. And, you know, I think it's a sort of been a kind of awful two weeks in a way because because they, Johnson started with a great sort of cavalier, all the all the restrictions are going. They then realised, including on, you know, trains and so on, then they realised that it was a kind of there was a terrible backlash. Then they've sort of retreated, but it's just sending incredibly confusing messages and incredibly confusing advice out to people. And, you know, as a shadow of business secretary, I talked to lots of businesses and they say, well, actually, having compulsory mask wearing on trains is quite, I mean, there's different views in business, but quite a lot of them say to me, it's quite a good thing to have because actually it means our workers can be assured that all the measures that you can take are being taken so that they can travel safely to work. I mean, it makes no sense. As to the why, I mean, it feels like absolutely driven by a small wing of the Conservative Party that has been pushing and pushing and pushing, maybe reflecting Johnson's own instincts. I mean, it's hard to look into Johnson's mind, but that's as far as I can surmise. Your guess is probably as good as mine. We're clearly at something of a critical juncture for the country. There's lots of kind of institutions, processes, areas of the economy that are going to have to rebuild. And we'll either try and do that by going back to normal or we'll rebuild things differently. How do you think we should be trying to use the recovery from the pandemic to change society? So I think there's a sort of dual impulse that people have here. And I know it's sort of true for myself. It's I'm probably true for you. That at one level, people are desperate to get back to normal for totally understandable reasons, seeing friends, family, all of the things that we took for granted before the pandemic. But at the same time, I think people do have a sense that the way I would put it is that the spirit that we have shown in the pandemic, where actually it's really important to sort of recognise this, the vast majority of people have obeyed the rules. The vast majority of people have looked after each other. We've mm. seen incredible self-help, communities rallying around, all of those things. But there is such a disjuncture between the spirit of the country and the way our institutions are run. And, you know, that is everything from the pay of key workers 
to the investment we have in our public services, to who has power at work and who doesn't, whether you can work from home, whether you can't, all of those things. And the lesson I draw from this pandemic is we've got to close the gap between who we really are as a country and the way our country is run. And I think that is a very strong case that we can make. And I actually do think that the next election will be a contest, a change contest. In other words, Johnson is not going to go into the next election. And I've, it's really interesting for me watching Johnson compared to Cameron. Cameron's argument was, for example, in the Brexit referendum, vote remain because everything's really good and we've done a great job. Johnson is not in that place. Johnson is trying to be the change agent. And therefore, the task for the Labour Party is to say, actually, you might talk about levelling up, you might talk about inequalities that we have in our society, but there's no way you're going to deliver on, on, on addressing them. We can deliver on them. So I think it is going to become, and, and you know, we don't know when we're going to be through the pandemic, but it will be, it must be, in my view, a contest about who can really build something better. So Johnson, as you mentioned, seems to have done a pretty good job of convincing people that this isn't the Conservative Party of 10, 20 years ago or whatever, that he's really changed the nature of, of the Conservative Party in the UK. Do you think that Labour has succeeded in convincing the public that the party has changed? And if not, how should we be trying to go about that? The, the, the Tories are the same as they ever were, you mean? Um, well, the, the Tories are the same and that also, you know, that Labour has, has changed and can offer something different for people. I'm thinking particularly about people who have voted in the last election saying, oh, we've lived under Labour administrations in this seat for however many elections and nothing seems to have changed. I mean, look, it, it, the answer is not yet, obviously, and that is what we've got to do. I mean, there's sort of two parts to this. On Johnson and levelling up, I mean, he gave this very, very poor, empty, vacuous uh, levelling up speech last week. I think it is really interesting what they're doing on this levelling up, because actually, I was thinking about this. It is a bit like the big society in Cameron, in the sense of they are claiming to have a certain orientation. In Cameron's case, it was to the voluntary sector, charitable sector. It was abdicating, actually, the responsibility of the state. In Johnson's case, it's to tackling the inequalities we face. But look at everything else he is doing. And it leans against tackling the inequalities that we face, cutting universal credit back to 74 quid a week, penciling in austerity in the local government, which is, I think, this is a sort of underreported story. That is in Sunak's plans in the so-called unprotected departments from April 2022. If I think about Doncaster, we've got a couple of town deals, and it's good that there's investment, some investment going in. But at the same time, as things stand, they're going to cut local government. They're going to cut local government spending, which completely undermines what you're trying to do in terms of tackling the inequalities we face. They've got an, they've scrapped their industrial strategy, so they don't have a proper industrial strategy. They don't have the investment in the green stimulus that we need. And it's incredibly piecemeal what they're doing. So if you add all these things up, I mean, there's no way this is going to achieve tackling the, the grand vision. And I think I think that chasm between the rhetoric of Johnson, he actually said a new, you know, he actually compared himself to the 1945 Labour government last mm. last year and said it's going to be we're going to build a new Jerusalem. 
I mean, for goodness sake, I think they are completely beatable on that agenda. At the same time, we've then got to show, and this is hopefully what my book can contribute to a bit, and I can do in my work as Chair Business Secretary, we've got to contribute to showing, well, actually, if you really want the change that I think the country does want, and I think you saw that with the Brexit referendum, I think you've seen it in the wake of the financial crisis, then then Labour can deliver it. Going back to this point about levelling up, you had a lot of recommendations in your book as to how we could combat regional inequality in the UK and um, make up for the kind of democratic deficit that we have at the the regional level because we're so centralised. And you talk a bit about the Preston model as well. How do you think that, A, what policies could we be using to, to reduce regional inequality in the UK? And how can local and regional Labour administrations work to roll out this agenda now, even while the Tories remain in power? I mean, there's so much to this. Let, let me just deal with some of the big elements of it. First, I just want to emphasise the importance of a Green New Deal climate investment, because this is an absolute necessity when it comes to the climate crisis. It is also a massive opportunity to create jobs right across our country, from retrofit to care to manufacturing the zero carbon engines of the future to green spaces and tackling the nature crisis. This is work crying out to be done. And if you really wanted to tackle regional inequality, this is an absolutely clear way that we could do it. So so it's got to start with that and resources. Secondly, I think it is about power. So I think the other thing that strikes me about where the current government is, is it is still what I would say in the book is a, what I call in the book, a a permission slip approach. So take Andy Burnham. He wants to re-regulate the buses, good, as in London. If he wants to run the buses himself as a municipal bus company, he can't do it by law. By law. Mm. That is, no other country would that, I, I cite the example of, in the book of Dunkirk, where they've got free bus travel, I'm pretty sure, either there or maybe it's in Tallinn, it's municipally owned. But um, And then, as you say, it's also drawing on the best examples of what we're doing locally. And, you know, Preston has got a lot of attention, rightly so, in my view, for the community wealth building approach. I'm sure there is more that government nationally could be doing to help with the procurement in terms of social value, in terms of procurement and all that to, to help rather than hinder the Preston's of the world. So I think it's a combination of things. It's put in the resources and you've got to end austerity, give local authorities real power and don't pretend that you're giving the power and then fail to do so. And then also support rather than hinder when it comes to local experimentation. And, you know, if I was a shadow business secretary, I would be trying to do some of the things that people like Matthew Brown are doing in terms of, for example, encouraging employee ownership, cooperative ownership. I mean, there is so much we could be doing if you had, imagine if you had central government on the side of local authorities and others trying to do these things. I think great things could happen. You mentioned climate there and and climate breakdown is something you've campaigned on a lot. It's a theme that comes throughout the book. What I thought was interesting was that rather than kind of just having a chapter on climate, you kind of wove those themes throughout the policy options that you were you were lining up in each chapter. How do you think we could adopt that approach post-pandemic? So rather than saying, you know, we need to do X and Y and Z as the government seems to be doing, 
to deal with climate breakdown, often things that are kind of quite piecemeal. Actually weaving in a focus on sustainability into every aspect of the recovery. Well, look, I think it needs doing. And I do think climate stands alone in that all of the issues that we're talking about and we'll talk about in this podcast are incredibly important. The thing about climate that is different is that the decisions we make in the next 10 years will have consequences for generations to come. Because if we don't tackle global warming in this decade, it will be too late. And now that is true of Britain, and it's obviously true around the world, and it's incredibly complicated and difficult. But what is this government's problem? It sets the targets, and the targets aren't good enough, but it sets targets which internationally may look good, but they are absolutely failing to deliver. That is a lot, in my view, to do with finance. The TUC did some interesting research saying our stimulus per head is 6% of that of Biden. You know, what's like almost basically one pound in every 20 compared to Biden. So it can be at the core of everything we do. You see, you see take care, for example. I, I have a chapter in the book on care. It seems to me that we talk too much when we talk about the, the fabled green jobs. We don't really talk about the care sector or not enough. That is absolutely central to the zero carbon economy. We know we're going to need more of those jobs. We know they're predominantly jobs done by women, uh, disproportionately by people of colour. They are, I'm afraid, massively, if you read off the security, the pay that people get in those jobs, and you then said, well, that's your priorities as a country, it looks like it's nearly the bottom of the heap. And they're the most, some of the most important jobs uh, that are being done. People are out on the streets clapping the carers. But, you know, we are way away from honouring that in reality. So I think if you go through all of the issues about our society, you can tackle regional inequality, the inequalities we face if you put climate at the centre of the agenda. Care is essential for our society and indeed it's part of the zero carbon economy that we, we need. Going beyond GDP is absolutely crucial, partly for non-climate reasons, but also obviously crucially because of nature and climate and the problems that GDP the sole focus on GDP causes. So I actually think it does, it is, if you think about democracy, how do we change our democracy? We should have a permanent standing citizens' assembly on climate because how can we make all these changes in our society and not do it in conversation as a conversation with the public? And indeed, the IPPR, the recent IPPR Commission on Environmental Justice, put people and, work, and indeed workers at the centre of the transition. So Climate is so central. And, and you know, if there's something that sort of haunts me, it's, it's that we talk about so many different other issues. And obviously, the, understandably, the focus has been on coronavirus. But aside from coronavirus, there is no issue more important than the climate crisis. And I genuinely, when you see the extreme weather events, the flooding in Germany, the heat waves in Pakistan, in Canada, you know, I think people will look back and say, you knew, and you just didn't give it nearly the seriousness it deserved. Let's pick up on that point about um, democracy, because you opened the book by talking about the social contract. And we know that kind of trust in a lot of our democratic institutions has broken down quite substantially in recent years. What do you think can be done to revive that trust in democracy? 
improve representative democracy and go beyond it is basically my answer. Improve it, votes at 16, proper devolution of powers, as we've discussed, so that actually people see the point in voting for local representatives. But I don't think representative democracy is enough on its own in the era we're living in, partly because the problems are too complex, partly because people, and this is a good thing, have higher expectations of their involvement. And so we should be experimenting, frankly. We should have a great wave of democratic experimentation, whether that is in relation to citizens' assemblies and you know, the role that they can play, and lots of your listeners will be familiar with them, participatory budgeting and the difference that can make. You know, there are cite examples in the book around young people and participatory budgeting. This isn't just an argument about which set of politicians should wield power. It's got to be about people wielding power. And by the way, I think it's also about how does the state work? Mm. You know, how how does how does the state give real power to communities? Some of the most inspiring people that I've that we've talked to on the podcast are the people who are trying to do things differently when it comes to local democracy, trying to find ways of kind of involving people in the decisions that really affect their lives. And you know, I cite the example, which might sound a bit strange, but I cite the example in of, of going through the floods in, in Doncaster in 2019. My constituency was very badly flooded in 2007 and in 2019. And I talk about the way in which in that period of 2019, I was just so struck by the way in which it wasn't quite clear where the local authority ended and the community began <laughs> in the sense. And, you know, I know co-creation sounds like the kind of term that you and I talk about and it's kind of what does it even mean? But there was a real sense of people pulling together and the state opening itself up the state i, t- I talk about this local uh, guy who works in the local authority pat my my friend pat hagen uh who who's our kind of flood czar who was sort of uh, handled the floods in 2007 called it into 2019 and it, you know he said to me right in the middle of the crisis it's time to rip up the rule book and i thought it was such a sort of interesting idea because it the rules, and I think the left doesn't talk about this enough. The way sometimes the way the state works can be quite disempowering, very disempowering. And actually, this was a way in which the old kind of divides broke down, and there was just a genuine sense when it worked. It wasn't always like this, but when it worked, of the state and the community being as one. And that is, you know, I'm not saying that the state can disappear or, you know, that you don't need the state. Of course, you do. But the way the state works is a crucial, crucial question. Another group that have been really harmed by the pandemic is young people. Um, and they've already been suffering from a decade of wage stagnation, a housing crisis. There have been two major economic crises within the lifetimes of many young people at the moment. This is in many ways Labour's new core vote. What can the party be doing to protect their interests? I mean, where do you start? Um, climate, housing, insecurity at work, public services more generally. I think there's so much that needs that needs doing. I mean, perhaps because we've talked about climate, let me just talk about housing. Investing at scale in social housing is as close as you get to a political no-brainer. <laughs> I mean, we haven't done it for 40 years. We've got a massive in new social housing. We've got a massive housing crisis. The private sector is incredibly insecure. Okay, the private sector needs to be made more secure. There needs to be more stability for renters and so on. We have a dysfunctional housing market. Governments of both parties have tried lots of different things apart from building social housing at scale in the last 40 years. And it's an investment with a return. I mean, it's just, 
you know, I just don't know why you would not do it. And I talk in the uh, book about Vienna, which, you know, I cite as an example of a capital city where you can live in different parts of the city without having loads of money to your name because because they have social housing at scale. So so I think that's a, a big part of it. I do think insecurity at work and you know the, the long-standing issues of zero hours contracts, wider insecurity, the way the gig economy works, all of those things have got to be have got to be addressed. And there's and you know there is really no solution to the inequality that we face unless we address the question of power and power in the workplace and the relative powerlessness uh, of workers. And I know I, I hope I'm allowed to talk about the IMF on this podcast, but, you know, there's this really important paper that I cite in the book from the IMF, which said a significant proportion, I think it's 50% of the growth that we've seen in inequality uh, was caused by the weakness of trade unions, the weakness of workers. And, you know, it's just like there's not even the most mainstream established institutions are saying this. So. I think all of those things are necessary, but climate is the biggest. I mean, all of these things matter, but climate is the biggest. And, you know, let's just be clear about this. It makes sense just for, for, the, for clarity. It makes absolute sense to invest in climate and in measures to combat the climate crisis. And, you know, the normal argument made against borrowing to invest is, well, what will young people do? I mean, let me tell you, and you, well, you know as well as I do, Leaving this mess for young people to clear up the climate catastrophe is the biggest mistake. It's the biggest legacy, the the the, the most awful legacy we could leave to, to young people, and and that's why we got to go at speed and much more urgently than we're doing. One thing that there's perhaps less of in the book is about our relationship with the rest of the world, and this is going to be a massive issue as the pandemic continues to ravage the poorest countries on the planet many of which are already struggling with massive debts, many more of which are now basically on the brink of insolvency. And we've seen the UK government vote to cut aid recently. How do you think we can build a compelling case for kind of solidarity with the rest of the world, whether that's kind of providing vaccines or aid or, you know, climate aid to the poorest parts of the world? How can we build a progressive case for that? I mean, morality and self-interest. And you know, I do think this aid debate has been interesting because that debate that was had uh, a week or so back, Theresa May, other Tories coming in and saying, look, this is just wrong what we're doing. This is just morally wrong. And, you know, I do think and this goes back to maybe your first question. At one level, the consensus hasn't hasn't kind of held for 0.7%. But at another level, Johnson is going massively against the consensus. And actually, from some of the polling that I've seen, you know, it, it, it's also true to say that his claim that this is somehow what the British people want, I mean, I think it's much more mixed than he might be claiming. So there is a self-interest argument here, but I think you've got to start with morality and you've got to go out and make this case forcefully. Then on the self-interest case, I mean, it's so blindingly obvious to me, unless we get the world vaccinated, unless we tackle the climate crisis across the world, we are never going to succeed in, in tackling either of them. And just on the climate thing, because you know the vaccine thing, I think, is, is obvious, it's really important this. We are at a very tenuous stage, I would say, of the COP26 build-up. COP26 is the big climate summit in November. We're at a very tenuous moment. 
And the reason we're at the ten, a tenuous moment, or one of the reasons, is A, we're in a race against time and no country's doing enough, but also because the world has not delivered on the $100 billion of climate finance for the developing world that was promised a decade ago, is not delivering on vaccines at the scale that is required, and in the case of the UK, is cutting its our aid spending. The only way this climate thing gets pulled off is with a coalition of developed countries, high ambition developed countries and vulnerable countries putting pressure on the largest emitters. That includes China, which is responsible for more than a quarter of global emissions. But that isn't happening at the moment because vulnerable countries are rightly saying, look, the developed world is just not delivering. It's just not delivering on its promises. And so I I think that the arguments for this are very strong and we've got to go out and make them really strongly. There are so many amazing ideas that you've uh, that you've got in this book, and it really is kind of inspiring, and it's a testament to the incredible amount of creativity that there's been in progressive circles, particularly since the financial crisis. But the question we always come back to is, is who's going to end up championing them? And you've got a kind of section at the end as to how we get there, looking at kind of, you know, as we've mentioned already, the labor movement, but also looking at kind of social movements, looking at building kind of support within political parties. We've spoken a bit about the labour movement and its importance in creating good work and, and fighting for pay increases. But what do we need to do to both expand the labour movement itself and also ensure that its leadership is democratically accountable to uh, to members? Look, I said earlier, there really is a strong role for unions and there's got to be a strong role for unions in the future. And um You can't address these issues of inequality without talking about the role of trade unions. And yes, we have fewer of the mass workplaces that were important to union organising. But if you look at what both some of the newer unions and some of the more established unions are doing, they are finding ways to organise people, to organise people into unions, to fight for people's rights and progressive advance even whether they're members of unions or not. The fight for $15 is a fascinating example in the US, which was a a product of the union SEIU. And the head of SEIU said, well, look, we want $15 and a union, but I'm going to go for the $15 and then I'm going to try and get people into unions at the same time. Now, this strategy is not, it's not a sort of silver bullet and there's there's kind of issues with it. But I think, first of all, unions are, are crucial to tackling the inequalities we face. Secondly, There are clearly issues in the UK around the ability of unions to organise access to workplaces and so on. And those issues have got to be tackled. But thirdly, the other thing we've got to think really hard about is what are the institutions that we can design that can embed a proper role for unions? Now, I cite the example of New Zealand in the book. New Zealand went down a kind of quasi-Thatcherite or Thatcherite set of economic reforms in the 1990s, I think it was, under a Conservative Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, who then rather amazingly recanted and said it would all gone too far. Anyway, so Jacinda Ardern got him to do this review and he recommended, and this is what the her government is now implementing, fair pay agreements, which is essentially some something like sectoral collective bargaining. And, you know, that's obviously a bit, been a big demand of the unions uh, here, increasing demand. And if you take an issue, an area like social care, you could start out in a place like social care, I say in the book. And I think that could make a real difference. So so I think I think the third thing is we need to work out what's the, what are the institutions that are going to 
properly embed a role for unions in our society. And the last point I'd say is this, which is, I think it's so interesting about where the Tories were during the pandemic have been, because they have found it necessary to call on the trade unions and call on the trade unions for engagement and support. Now, they haven't in the relation to the in relation to the most recent workplace guidance, they haven't done it nearly in the way they should have done. But I think it is very interesting about them what it says, not about who the Tories are or whether they've changed, about what it says about the mood, their reading of the mood of the country. And the only way we rebuild, frankly, the only way we rebuild in the way where we need to is with an alliance of progressive businesses, trade unions and government. And so I think trade unions are going to be fundamental to the kind of rebuilding we need to do. There are lots of amazing social movements that have emerged over the past decade from anti-austerity movements to Black Lives Matter to Extinction Rebellion. What do you think needs to be done to ensure these movements can work together and join up to create lasting change? I mean, look, in a way, it's not for me as a politician to tell those movements what to do. I think political change doesn't come because politicians make it happen. It comes because politicians might be the people who enact the laws, but it, it's a lot to do with social movements. And that isn't to deny the role of politicians. Obviously, I am a politician, so I do believe we've got an important role. But I think social movements form the crucial context for how things can change. If you think about the climate question, after the 2015 general election, I was lobbying the Conservative government to legislate for net zero emissions. 2050 net zero would have been seen then as a sort of quite a radical position. Now it's seen rightly as a, as a relatively conservative position. And that is a lot, to, okay, it's a lot to do with the climate crisis and what the science is telling us, but it's also to do with the social movements, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or the pupil climate strikers and what they have done. What Black Lives Matter have, has done to change both public opinion about racial injustice, to change the political context for racial injustice, I think is is massive. So I think it's not for me to, in a way, to tell these, certainly isn't for me to tell these movements what to do. I think the other point I make, though, in the book is it is really interesting to study which of these movements succeed and which don't. I think people think that these movements are often to do with sort of hastily organised demonstrations, events, and so on. Actually, so much of the evidence is that it's the culture there's a distinction people draw between organizing and mobilizing. Mobilizing is getting people to go out in the street. There's obviously an important role for that. But organizing is the kind of hard yards of forming alliances, forming networks of people who won't just go to one event, but are going to be a kind of consistent presence on an issue. Consistent presence, mobilizing their representatives. And in a way, it becoming a crucial part of their consciousness as people. Believe it or not, uh, I cite in the book the National Rifle Association, not an organisation I approve of, but you know, one of the points that Hari Han, who studies these things, makes is that the NRA is very, very good at organising. It makes people's membership of the NRA part of their sort of identity, part of their community, part of their social groups. So I think there are really interesting lessons about the kind of organising and mobilisation that works. And there's a role in this for different aspects of this, for the demonstrations, for the people on the street, but also for this kind of more, alongside it, this more painstaking work. 
Finally, there's the thorny question of how these movements, how the Labour movement orients itself towards the Labour Party. How do you think we can be organising to ensure that these policies are enacted? Because as you've said, you know, it's not just up to politicians, it's up to movements to kind of create the context in which these decisions are being made. Well, I mean, look, I strongly believe that the Labour Party has got to be a vehicle for big change. I think that's what this country wants to see. I believe that's what Keir Starmer thinks too. I think we don't quite know when, but we are moving out of the phase of the pandemic, hopefully, although probably not not now, but but you know, in the months ahead. You know, the next election is going to be a change election. It's going to be an election where the Tories are not coming along and saying, vote for us to carry on with conservatism and the status quo. They are going to be presenting themselves as the architects have changed. Now, I don't believe it myself, but we've got to not just expose that, but say, look, the country does need change. And this is the point I always come back to, Grace, is that what have we been through in the last decade or more? We've been through the financial crisis, we've been through Brexit, and we've now been through coronavirus with all it has illustrated about inequality and deprivation. I represent a constituency, Doncaster North, which voted heavily for Brexit, Fundamentally, I believe it was about the desire for big change. That is the right thing for the country. Big economic change is what the country needs. Our economy does not work for so many people. That's what's got to be different. We face a massive climate crisis. We face generational inequality. How can you look at that and think, well, that requires small tinkering around the edges? I don't believe it. Keir doesn't believe it either. And so our task is to go out there and argue for that. And and I think that's what we are going to do. And I think that's what we've got to do. And I think actually that is a that is an agenda that can unite people right across the Labour movement and the Labour Party. Because I think we all there may have different wings of the Labour Party, different factions of the Labour Party, but I do believe that that right across the Labour Party we joined because we have a vision of a better society and a vision of a different society. And I think that's what we've got to go out and argue for. Thank you so much, Ed Miliband, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. 